Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, President Biden took office with the promise that the U.S. would return as a global leader on climate and make climate change a pillar of American foreign policy. The president hosted the Leaders Climate Change Summit in April, bringing together leaders from across the Americas and across the world to discuss the most pressing issues related to climate change and to gauge varying levels of commitment to a climate-centric agenda. Today, our panel will discuss the Climate Summit and the actions that governments in the Americas are taking or not taking to address climate change. So let's bring back our roundtable. Help me welcome Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Greetings, Benjamin. Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Nice to be here, John. Great to see you, Anya. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands joins us. Hello, bonjour. Hello, Christopher. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hi, Cindy. And Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hey, Andrew. Hey, John. So let's start with you, Benjamin, if we could. You recently co-authored a piece in Project Syndicate titled Biden's Climate Opportunity in Latin America. So tell us about it. What is the opportunity in Latin America? Thanks, John. I think there's a real sense of urgency, but also optimism among those who advocate for ambitious climate policy at the government level that the United States now has some leverage in Latin America that it might not have had for the last four years and could use that leverage to really drive major climate action. You know, the region, like other parts of the world, are thinking about how to build back from the economic devastation of the pandemic. And when making those decisions, you know, it's a crossroads and there's a sense that the United States can urge climate action rather than investing in the same old industries and falling further away from the Paris Agreement goals. Uh, what can a, another country from the outside looking in do to encourage transition to renewable energy? Does the Biden administration really have any leverage in that regard? It's an important question. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is, is there really is an opportunity. I think if you look at the renewables potential in Latin America, it's extraordinary. And that goes from, you know, the deserts of northern Chile with amazing solar potential to the Patagonian region of Argentina with all this wind potential. The region generates, you know, the lithium that's needed for renewable energy, for the batteries. So there's also public opinion in Latin America. You know, climate change is not a partisan issue in the way that it is in the United States. Leaders in the region rhetorically say they're on board. A lot of them participated in the summit you mentioned, John, um, that President Biden hosted. So there's a lot of willingness to engage. There's just no money to do it. And that's really where the United States can come in, driving private sector investment, using export credit agencies, making it financially possible to make this transition so that there can be investments, for example, in charging stations, so there can be investments in electric vehicles, so there can be investments in electric buses. There's all sorts of potential. And frankly, there's a lot of economic upside, there's public health upside and cleaner air, but there needs to be a push. And right now, Latin American budgets just don't have it. And the little money they're spending to recover from the pandemic, it's going to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. So it's not resistance to a transition from fossil fuels to other types of energy sources. It's just that the transition itself is unattainable based on the cost. 
Yeah, it's costly. And I think, you know, when you bring together the environmental ministers from the region, even the best performers, they talk a lot about climate finance and the need to bring resources to bear to this cause, but they never show any resistance, right? They're fully on board. And frankly, now the United States is giving diplomatic upside. You know, John Kerry, the climate envoy, is constantly talking to leaders in the region, even to Brazil, and Anya can talk more about the prospects there. So, you know, invitations to White House summits, there's a lot of diplomatic upside, but there needs to be some resources on the table to help push this forward. Anya, uh, of course, we led, we go back to Bolsonaro, right? It seems like all roads lead to him, whether we're talking about pandemics or climate change, the most notable or noteworthy climate denier in the region. And as Benjamin mentions, most of the region isn't questioning the science. Tell us about Bolsonaro and his opinion on climate change. Well, Bolsonaro has said from the beginning that um, Brazil has already conserved more of its forests than most of the developed world. Um, and that, you know, if the developed world wants Brazil to continue in that, um, in that, you know, line of policy action, that, you know, countries like the United States, um, you know, the European Union countries, for example, need to provide financial support to Brazil. So certainly Brazil agrees with what Benjamin is saying, you know, that this transition is expensive and that they need investment, they need funding. I think the challenge, um, if you're talking to the Europeans or, or you're talking to the, the U.S. government, is figuring out how to have accountability and transparency in terms of the use of those funds. Um, so if you're talking to you know policymakers in the U.S., they want to know where is that money going, what's being done with it, and the Brazilian government um, really hasn't been very clear in terms of what accountability and transparency measures it's willing to undertake. Mm -hmm. Cindy, give us give us some thoughts from around the region in this regard. You know what I'm kind of thinking is is it fair for uh, the powerhouse economies of the world, like the United States, uh, to expect countries with lesser economies or even third world economies to bear the burden that will be necessary to make the transition? Well, it certainly isn't. I mean, developing countries will certainly point out that the United States and other, you know, Western advanced industrial economies benefited from decades and decades of, of pollution and use of fossil fuels to drive their development, whereas developing countries, you know, have not done that. But I do think that, um, you know, developing countries are some of the ones that are being hardest hit. You see it, whether it's in terms of glacial melt in the Andes in, in Peru or sea rise in Caribbean. In the Caribbean island uh, areas or other parts with long coastlines, which of course Latin America and South America, you know, um, both those regions have in spades. Um, but I think Benjamin has also pointed out a fundamental um, uh, complication for South American, Central American, North American Caribbean economies, which is that they are just desperate to come up with revenue in any way they can to make their way out of the pandemic and this devastating sort of contraction in GDP and in consumption, the rise in unemployment, the rise in inequality, um, all of the ways that that uh, populations have been um, have been affected. And if that means to you know further develop fossil fuels, to further uh, export primary commodities, um, they're going to do that in any way they can. At the same time, there are examples of leadership in the region, whether it's in Uruguay or in Chile or in Costa Rica, um, of, of making this transition away from fossil fuels to green sources of energy. I mean, you just look at the Chilean case of the solar 
panels that are in the Atacama Desert in, in the north. And this is an industry that really, it's not that it developed overnight, but it certainly didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago. Um, Uruguay now has the vast majority of its electricity, if not all of its electricity, you know, from renewable sources. And so it's not impossible for countries of, of Latin America and the Caribbean to aspire to having this kind of renewable energy matrix. You, you know, I, I want to mention, Cindy, just to our listeners that uh, back on April 12th, you hosted an event uh, on climate leadership in, in Latin America, and you it, there were State Department officials there. You had environment ministers from Argentina, Chile, and Colombia. And so if people are interested in that, they can come to the Latin American program page on the Wilson Center website and check past events to hear more directly from some of the nations we're talking about. Andrew, when we talk about investment uh, necessary to make the transition, we're not just talking about government tax revenue-driven investment. What role does the private sector play? Well, that's that's exactly right, John. It, it, the private, the public sector, the governments obviously have a big role to play. But in, in increasingly, if you talk to the private sector, companies have made global commitments to reduce their own emissions or get to zero emissions, and they're looking for opportunities to do that. Which, ultimately, I think, given shareholder demand, that's going to drive investment decisions. So, a country that isn't necessarily funding but is making creating the regulatory environment such that development of private sector solar farm or wind farm for example is possible that could actually drive both investment in the facility and then investment in other uh, other manufacturing for example that would uh, create jobs and help that country also move toward a, a greener future benjamin i think you have a thought you want to share yeah, I mean, I just want to turn it back to Andrew and, and ask about the Mexican government. I know Andrew's talking about the private sector. Anya recognized, you know, Brazil is not, you know, all that helpful an actor, at least in my view. But I think we should talk about the president of Mexico, who, if I recall, used the climate summit to announce plans to expand oil production, um, or at least certainly didn't take the opportunity to promote a really ambitious agenda when it comes to green energy. Well, that, that's true. I, I think saying he didn't take the opportunity to promote green energy is, is certainly fair, Benjamin. Um, Lopez Obrador is, is unabashedly uh, in favor of the, the renaissance, if you will, of, of the reliance on hydrocarbons, on building, um, building back uh, Pemex, the, the state oil company and the state electricity company. And, and you're absolutely right, that is raising some concerns. I think it's not so much that he's, he's necessarily anti-green, he's just pro-hydrocarbon. Pro um, and it ha I, I think you're, you're right, they ra raised some interesting questions as well. The um, mixing of, of migration and climate change in, in the AMLO government's suggestion that the U.S. should fund the tree planting initiative, Sembrando Vida, in return for worker visas, worker visas eventually for Central American migrants. So you're you're absolutely right. Some some complicated issues there. Chris Sands. Well, I think actually that points to one area where we might see Canada playing an important role. Canada is very split on on green action, with the Prime Minister and much of Eastern Central Canada very focused on reducing carbon intensity, etc. But you have provinces like Newfoundland and Alberta with a significant amount of, of hydrocarbons. And they want to be part of a transition, but obviously they start with this endowment. And one of the things that Canada has become quite good at is carbon capture, usage, and storage. And 
for example, you can reuse carbon um, that's captured in cement, in concrete, in order to build buildings and roads and other things where it doesn't have the environmental impact. So as much as we, we want to move forward on electrification of vehicles and other areas, for countries like Mexico, there may be a way to continue to make that transition where hydrocarbons are at least part of the picture, but less carbon intensive than in the past with solutions like this. And Canada has the technology, ought to be looking for opportunities to share that, transfer that in order to help Mexico and other countries along. You know, you know for obvious reasons, when we discuss this, we, we think in terms of individual nation states. But when you talk about climate as a, as a phenomenon, as a, as a natural phenomenon, it doesn't recognize borders or nations or, or leaders. Uh, could you talk a bit about the jurisdictional challenges here? I, I know that the, the Amazon looms large in this discussion, not just for the Americas, but for the entire planet. And yet, you know, it's, it's something that lives within a country's borders in large part. What can you tell us about the jurisdictional issues and whether there is any effort for coordination among the nations of the Americas? John, I'll, I'll jump in and, and start on that. Um, and Anya can certainly add, I mean, when we think of the Amazon, we tend to think of Brazil, but the Amazon basin is much larger and includes parts of Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. Um, thus far, I don't see a lot of evidence of coordination between um, and among those countries. Um, on the contrary, there are efforts to develop the resources that are available in, in the Amazon, including hydrocarbon resources, and that is a frequent source of conflict uh, most especially with indigenous groups um, that have lived in the forest and have tried to live sustainably and, and use resources um, sustainably. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's a big, uh, it's a big challenge for South America to coordinate on Amazon policies because the headwaters of the river are one place, whereas the, the bulk of the mileage is in another country. Um, and it's very much the case that the, that the uh, ecosystem is interconnected. Just to build on what Cindy said, um, you know, obviously when we think about the Amazon, 60% of it is in Brazil. So people tend to think of Brazil, but it is much larger. Um, that said, I mean, because Brazil does have the majority of it, it is, you know, a huge player um, in any effort to preserve the Amazon. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we've seen under Jair Bolsonaro has been that his foreign policy has not been incredibly engaged um, with other countries in the region. He really has not built alliances on, on around international issues. Um, and so certainly we're seeing Brazil, who at one point had this leadership role, not just in South America, but around the world on environmental issues. I mean, they hosted the Earth Summit in 1992, right? And they played a, a critical role in the Paris Accord negotiations. We've seen Brazil really abdicate a lot of its leadership when it comes to climate change and, and international negotiations on this issue. And in some ways it has left a vacuum, right? Because without Brazil having an active role at the table, how do you have a comprehensive continental-wide conversation about the Amazon. One thing I think that's encouraging though, Anya, I'd say is there was finally an environmental treaty that was region-wide that just came into effect on Earth Day, the Escasu Agreement. And it's not perfect, it's mostly focused on access to information about environmental protection so that when there's going to be some kind of development project, people can actually find out what environmental impact there might be and then can weigh in. But at least I think it does show a willingness 
to coordinate. I think there were the minimum 12 signatories in time for the Earth Day announcement, and ideally there'll be more. But again, it is a signal that there can be some coordinated effort on the environment. And I think at the event, John, you referenced earlier that the Latin American program hosted, there was a lot of talk of similar but smaller scale initiatives, including on deforestation, that countries were working on in a coordinated fashion. And you're seeing that in marine protection as well with Chile and Argentina. So I think there are some bright spots where regional governments have said, yeah, just as you pointed out, John, this is something that needs to be addressed across borders. Anya Prusa, please. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, Brazil's new foreign minister, there is a lot of hope that he will be more active, right, in, in building some of these relationships. And certainly, um, if you look at a subnational level in Brazil, the Amazon governors have actually been incredibly active at engaging with their counterparts in the region and also governors in the United States and elsewhere. Chris Sands. I was going to second that. It Certainly between Canada and the United States, we've often found that the subnational governments are more proactive. They want to be involved in, in environmental discussions. And it's usually the federal governments that kind of get in the way because they're in charge of international relations. But where we've let them loose, the, the Great Lakes in, in the Midwest, which are shared waterways, uh, the Columbia River uh, connecting Washington and British Columbia, and of course the state of Oregon, these are areas where, by getting subnational politicians involved, we've been able to come to consensus much more easily. And we forget that federal governments are really good at the big things, but when it gets down to the details and the politics are quite local, they're often really frustrated. So some balance, and of course Brazil's a federation, Mexico's a federation, there are others, uh, of using both levels of government may be necessary to make progress on some of these environmental issues. Andrew, you, you, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned in our chat function here this debt for nature swaps concept, where, you know, let's make a deal. Uh, if you want to see progress within our countries and we're struggling economically, uh, help us, uh, help us make progress. Yeah, John. It, it, when Anya was talking before, it reminded me of of, of actually something I worked on uh, when I was at the Wilson Center the first time, a very long time ago. Uh, with a guy at the Smithsonian, Tom Lovejoy, who was the, the original proponent of that debt for nature swap. And, and Anya, what you were saying, describing Bolsonaro's approach of, to the world of, hey, if you want us to do this, you've got to help. It, it sounded like, though he probably would never say debt for nature, that certainly sounded like what he was talking about. Cindy Artson. And there's um, a, a lot more rationale now for debt for nature swaps, given um, the huge levels of indebtedness of Latin American countries and the way that they have taken on um, additional loans and, and debt to GDP ratios are, are skyrocketing, you know, just to get through the pandemic. Um, and so to provide some relief, given that there are very few concessional, actual concessional loans available to middle income countries, um, debt for, neighbor, uh, for nature swaps could be a very viable alternative for the region. It's a, it's a good point. I mean, John, you mentioned, the, you, you mentioned the sovereignty issues earlier. This is the one time where countries don't swat you away and say, hey, don't talk to us about what we do inside our borders. That's right. Lead with your checkbook and suddenly you have a, a, a much uh, more attentive audience. So let me ask you something, because one of the things that you've been great at doing throughout the, the course of this series is sort of uh, alerting us to the electoral sensitivities, where these issues meet the populace and could affect the popular vote. And we've certainly seen globally elections that have turned on the pandemic, the question of the pandemic. Uh, Benjamin, you mentioned the, the popular uh, support for dealing with climate change and a lack of denial in the Americas. 90% of citizens in Latin America, according to one poll, see climate change as a serious threat. So the, my question is about, is this something that is going to manifest itself in electoral politics? Do people care about this enough to vote on it? 
It's a really important question. I, mean, I think Cindy's absolutely right. This is not the issue at the forefront of the political agenda because there are so many pressing social needs in the country because poverty and unemployment have risen so high so fast. But I certainly think there's no political cost to it. It is simply not a partisan issue and it is not seen as a job killing effort when you want to pay attention to the environment. But I do think that there are candidates who have risen to great heights based on environmental agendas. The one that comes to mind was in the Ecuadorian election, where a candidate who barely lost in the first round, nearly made it to the second round, his entire platform was environmental protection. And I think he's not the only one. So I do think you're starting to see parties and candidates in the region bringing the environment onto the political conversation. If you could get over the hump, it, well, let me ask anybody else want to uh, weigh in on the electoral implications. Do they see any countries where climate change can, can turn an election? In Brazil, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, I think, you know, the issue of the environment, environmental protections have become more polarized. Um, and part of that is because the Amazon is home to 25, 30 million people who, who, you know, for the most part are among some of the poorest in Brazil. And so Jair Bolsonaro, when he ran for office in 2018, part of his platform was that he would develop the region, right? He would help people gain a more stable income. Um, and so what we've actually seen is that he does have, you know, there are certain political incentives for him to kind of double down and say, we need to have investment, we need to have development in the region. I think the opportunity is to shift the type of development that takes place. It's, it's striking, John, that in a, in a way, this is true on both ends of the spectrum. When we're talking globally, we have developing countries that want to develop as greenly as possible, but they're playing catch up. And then you have people who really want the planet uh, and its climate to be addressed as a top priority, but often from a position that's relatively privileged economically. And that happens globally. But it, you can see from what Anya's saying, and it's certainly true even in Canadian domestic politics, that those trade-offs are very political. Alberta is a wealthy province, but could quickly become a poor province if it's not allowed to develop its hydrocarbons. Um, and yet, for Eastern Canada, with a very uh, green conscience, even British Columbia, their next door neighbor, that have been fighting their ability to build pipelines and, and so forth. So this is the kind of politics of the environment that is getting quite real for all of us. And it will have electoral consequences, I think, in many countries, but also have a big impact on what we can achieve uh, internationally. Cindy. Yeah, I was going to say that um, in electoral terms, I think that it's an important issue in public opinion. Uh, but for the most part, looking ahead into the presidential elections and the, the, the elections taking place throughout the remainder of this year and into next year, it's really a secondary issue. Uh, bread and butter issues are much more important to people. Um, you see a rise in, in populism and a sense of nationalizing uh, local um, extractive industries. Um, in Colombia, the protests that are, you know, taking place as we're speaking, um, you know, are over uh, tax reform and how the government is going to meet in this huge gap between fiscal revenues and, and expenditures during the pandemic. And I think that those are the issues, those bread and butter issues are the ones that are going to continue to drive the conversation, um, which is not to say that environment isn't important. If you can do the bread and butter part, plus the, the green energy stuff, I think you you know, you uh, will be a very attractive candidate. Well, again, you know, you talk about things that are unique to a region and things that are universal. I mean, this seems to be a global issue, right? That it, climate change is like a white noise in the background that never goes away, but it, it's not the fire that's burning right down the block that needs to be put out. Benjamin Gadan, you have some thoughts on, on this whole notion of trade-offs. 
It is a fire that's burning. I mean, it's burning in the Amazon. It's burning throughout the region. Quite literally, at times. Deforestation, yeah. Um, and I think, frankly, you know, those fires have at least been a moment where it really has um, captured the public imagination. You no, know, the one thing, John, I just want to end with is I don't, I don't believe necessarily that it is a trade-off. I think Latin America is in a fortunate position where there are actually costs not to have decent environmental policy. Brazil is being shunned by certain investors. Those thinking about the supply chains are questioning whether they should buy things like beef and soy from places that are contributing to deforestation and climate change. And on the other hand, countries like Uruguay are doing a really fabulous job attracting foreign investment as they expand renewable energy production. So I think there's economic upside, as I mentioned earlier, that you know the U.S. in the beginning needs to help out with some of the upfront costs. And I think there's economic downside not to be ambitious on the environment. In, in that regard, I, I'm going to ask one more quick question. We're almost out of time. But with that notion in mind that Benjamin just put on the table, are there countries that are best positioned to take advantage of this and become leaders in this area? And even though there's a short-term investment, uh, eventually there could be long-term significant gain. I mean, certainly Brazil, you know, although, you know, deforestation has been increasing and there have been a lot of challenges, there's also so much opportunity um, for Brazil to really be, you know, a green power, whether that's energy or, or agriculture or, you know, creating a standing forest economy, the opportunities are vast. I think it's also the case that um, that uh, nothing succeeds like success and the countries that are in a position to attract the greatest amount of foreign investment and domestic investment are already countries that are leading in this way. As Benjamin was mentioning, Uruguay, also Chile, um, Colombia as well, that has an enormous amount of hydropower and is trying to attract uh, you know, more investment into this sector. Um, I think Peru is going to remain very heavily dependent on the extraction of natural gas. Um, Mexico in terms of uh, in terms of oil, Colombia also in terms of oil. Um, but there is certainly a sense among the leaders of many countries that attracting investment in the energy transition is a way to combine really two positive things: one, levels of economic growth and, and investment, and also um, addressing climate issues. Cindy, thank you. Anya, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, thanks to you as well. Always a pleasure to learn from you and hear your insights, and we look forward to more of that in future episodes. And until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center at America's 360, I'm John Molusky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.